We're in 2 Samuel chapter 17 and chapter 18, where we're going to have, uh, we're going to talk about this story just a little bit, and, and uh, um, well, other than just getting into it, I want you to see these images uh, on this first screen. Anybody know what they represent? Right? Um, theater, right? Theater, the theater. That's one of those Christmas Eve movies, uh, Christmas movies. This, this is comedy, and this is tragedy. The two kinds of plays that you can go see or um, uh, uh, stories that you can go hear. Don't think of comedy as ha, ha, ha. Comedy simply means has a good ending to it, a, a good positive ending to it. Uh, tragedy has a, a, a bad ending to it. And those are the two choices that you have when it comes to all uh, theater and all presentations and stories. It's either a comedy or it is a tragedy. And tonight, we're going to notice that there's an awful real possibility that our lives just simply have both in them. You can't characterize stories one or the other. Often it has both. So what we're going to do tonight, it's a little different. Instead of telling the morals and the things that we learned from the story we just read, we're going to talk about the stories or the morals before we get into the story. And I want you to be looking for these applications of the story as we go through it. First of all, personal sin impacts more than the person who committed it. Personal sin that is committed by someone often impacts more than just that person. You think that's true? Have you seen that borne out in life as you've watched it? A child may do something that, that is sinful for them, but it hurts the parents. Or the parents, you do something and it hurts your kids. It's a law almost in, built into Life, but the consequences are, uh, of sin are more extensive than we can estimate sometimes and more intensive too. And keep in mind that consequences don't always mean punishments. While God forgave David of some of his sin, right? You're not going to die, I'm going to forgive you, but still, the consequences will come anyway. They won't be punishment, but it will be the implications of your sins. And sometimes the difference between those things don't really matter at all. It feels the same. A, a second thing that we're going to see is that you have to be careful who you are loyal to. Loyalty is a great attribute, but you have to be careful who you give this to. Who you are loyal to has consequences for you. So be careful who you give loyalty to. A third thing is that you cannot uh, really survive or thrive in life by yourself. You will, at some point, need help. And who you surround yourself with, who you frequently know and come in contact with, says a lot about you and has a great bearing on how this life goes. You are responsible for the influences you allow to be in your life. And sometimes they bless you immensely, and sometimes they curse you. Pride goes before a fall. That's true, that's scripture, that's Proverbs, but it's true all over the scriptures. Pride makes you vulnerable. I don't know if you've seen the movie The Patriot, but in The Patriot, Mel Gibson's character is able to uh, get the battle plans and the battle philosophy of the British general who's fighting against him. And he notices how 
arrogant he is and how low a view he has of American fighters and how he can take them all. And he, and he learns from this guy's arrogance exactly how to attack him. And he's able to defeat him in the area of his arrogance. And many times that's true of us. And when great pride is humbled in a great way, it is painful. And pride often causes you to overlook the wisdom that is available around you if you would have just listened. You think that's true for some of you? Have you noticed that in your own life? Here's another one. Uh, We are to live our lives using lessons that we've learned from the past. Experience is a terrible thing to waste. And just because you've had experiences doesn't mean you've learned from them. You have to reflect on them to get the, the benefits from them. Otherwise, you keep repeating the same mistakes. It's called insanity, right? And finally, it's always good, always best to ask God to be involved in your life. It should be a first priority and not a last resort. And sometimes, sometimes it operates in the strangest of ways. All right, so that's the lesson as we start chapter 17 of 2 Samuel. We're not going to read everything. We're just going to get the storyline. David is still by the Jordan River. That's where he's at when this story starts. Absalom has entered Jerusalem as the new king for the time being. And according to the advice of the one that everybody almost worshipped for his wisdom, Ahithophel, uh, he's already slept with the concubines of David as to kind of like uh, prove that he has got a total severance from David. And now he's deciding, what's the next move? David is waiting by the Jordan to figure out what he needs to do. And Absalom is in Jerusalem trying to figure out what he needs to do. And so he presents the question, and we're in chapter 17 of 2 Samuel. And he's got the prized Ahithophel, wise man, right? And you remember David, as he was going up uh, the Mount of Olives, he found out Ahithophel has gone to the other side. And do you remember what he did as he was walking up? He prayed to God that God would discourage or thwart Ahithophel's advice. And he sent later on Hushai back to be a discourager of it. Okay, just remember that from last time. Chapter 17 of 2 Samuel. Ahithophel said to Absalom, Here's what you need to do now. Let me choose 12,000 men, and I will arise and pursue David tonight. You get this? Ahithophel the wise man was going to become Ahithophel the general. I'm going to lead 12,000 men against David right now. Don't you wait. Don't give him any more time. Let's go right now. I will come upon him while he is weary and discouraged and throw him into a panic, and all the people who are with him will flee. I will strike down only the king. I not care about anybody else. I'm going to kill him, and I'll bring all the people back to you as a bride comes home to her husband. It's going to be like a honeymoon for you. You seek the life of only one man, and all the people will be at peace. And the advice seemed good to Absalom and his wise men. So he said, man, that sounds really good. Let's, let's gear up. But they said, let's just wait a minute before we get too excited about this plan from Ahithophel, the wise guy. Let's ask Hushai. Now, you remember Hushai is really David's plant. And Hushai knows Ahithophel is very, very convincing. So if he's going to thwart this plan, he better be shrewd, right? So Absalom said, call Hushai the archite also. Let us hear what he has to say. And when Hushai came to Absalom, Absalom said to him, this is what Ahithophel spoke to me. Should we do what he says? If not, what's your view? 
okay. So now he knows. He gave, it, he gave him already, told him exactly what Ahithophel said in the first four verses. Hushai said to Absalom, this time, this time, the counsel of Ahithophel is not good. Now normally I'd say, yeah, and put a stamp of approval on it, but this time, no, it's not good. Hushai said, you know your father and his men are mighty men, and they are enraged like a bear robbed of her cubs in the fields. Besides, your father is an expert in war. He will not spend the night with the people. Behold, even now he's probably hidden himself in one of the pits or in some other place. And as soon as some of the people fall at the first attack, whoever hears it will say there, there's been a slaughter among the people who follow Absalom. And then even the valiant man whose heart is like the heart of a lion will utterly melt with fear. For all Israel knows that your father is a mighty man and all the, the, those who are with him are valiant men. But my counsel is this. All Israel should come to you from Dan in the north to Beersheba in the south as the sand of the sea for a multitude, and you go to battle in person. So shall come upon him in a, you'll come upon him someplace where he's to be found, and, and we shall light upon him as the dew falls on the ground, and of him and all the people with him not one will be left. If he withdraws into the city, all Israel will bring ropes to that city, and we will drag it to the valley until not even a pebble is to be found there. And Absalom and all the men of Israel said, This counsel of Hushai is better than Ahithophel. And they went with it. What a brilliant thing. Just notice two things that he appealed to, okay? For those of you, you, wanna, you, you got a, an arrogant person in your life, exploit their arrogance. Here's what Hushai said. Ahithophel was going to lead the army. Hushai said, no, 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 no. You, Absalom, lead the army, right? You lead it. Ahithophel says, I'll take 12,000 men. Hushai says, no, no, no. We will contact everybody from north to south, and when you ask, they'll all come down here. For you, they'll fight. Arrogance dripping, and he's just seeing it drip. We'll go get David only, Ahithophel says. And Absalom, who's this angry rebel, he says, no, 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 we're going to get them all, right? We're going to get them all, and they're all going to come to you, and you're going to lead them. Amazing. He appeals to that arrogance. And because of that, Absalom goes with Hushai. This is so devastating, y'all, that Ahithophel goes back home, gets his affairs in order, and hangs himself. Does that sound like anybody you've ever heard before? Sounds a lot like Judas in the New Testament when he goes against the Lord's anointed. Right? Pride is appealed to. And these suggestions are then sent to David. When David uh, is out there, he's waiting for, for Hushai to get word. So Hushai goes to the priests. The priests send a girl. A girl goes to meet two men. Two men who are spies for David go on the run. The king sees them. The king's men sees them. They chase them. They hide in a well. And they get to David and they say, here's the advice of Hushai. Here's the advice of Ahithophel. And so far as we know, Hushai's the one that wins. But you need to get across this Jordan right now. And that night, without a one night separating that every single person, not one is left, they all cross the Jordan, which is quite a, a, a feat in the darkness of night. And they go to a town called Manaam. 
And that's where they hold up as they wait for what Absalom does next. And Absalom takes some time. We don't know how much time. He takes some time. He gets an army together, and he comes down, and he crosses the Jordan. But in the meantime, if you look at chapter 17, verse 29, you see that God brings people to David. When David came to Manaam, verse 27, Shobi the son of Nahash from Rabbah of the Ammonites, Mashur the son of Amiel from Lodibar, that's where Mephibosheth stayed for so long, and Barzillai the Gileadite from Rogelium, brought beds, basins, earthen vessels, wheat, barley, flour, parched grain, beans, and lentils. Everybody needs their lentils. Honey, curds and whey. No, no whey, curds. Sheep, cheese from the herd. For David and his people with him to eat, for they said, the people are hungry and weary and thirsty in the wilderness. There he gets help from some loyalists. Absalom does cross the Jordan in chapter 18. And he comes after David. Joab is David's general. Joab's cousin is Absalom's general. They don't like each other in family, and they love the idea of taking it out on the battlefield. It's a wonderful thing for them. David organizes his army in chapter 18. He selects three generals, breaks them up in threes, and he's got hundreds, he's got thousands, and he sees them, he sees them together, and great pride fills his heart. And he thinks he's going to lead them, but the three generals get together, and they say, David... They're going to all be after you. You're worth 10,000 of us. So you're not going to go into this battle. You're going to stay in the city. David could have easily argued with these people, but he sees these three generals who are prepared for war, and they decide, we want you to stay here, and he listens to them. And he stays, and he watches them march out of the city. But as they go by him, he only has one request, one last word for everyone who marches by. I don't know if you heard the reading a moment ago, but it's one of the saddest passages in all the Scripture. You were given a front row seat of a man who just found out his son was dead. And he loved Absalom. Was he rebellious? Yes. Was he obnoxious and a pain in his side? Yes. But he was his son. You ever said that about your kid? Man, they're a pain in my side, but I love this kid. The last word he says to everybody, and it says he keeps saying it over and over again to make sure everybody hears it. All these thousands of people hear it. Deal gently for my sake with the young man Absalom. Deal gently for my sake. Care about me enough to be merciful toward Absalom. The army went out to fight, and it was a battle in the forest. This is interesting. This is, if you recall, this is how David and his men fought for years against Saul, out in the woods, out in the wilderness, in these very, very harsh conditions. And so that's the battlefield they pick. Rather than the open field where more formally trained soldiers might uh, excel, um, they fight in the place where they choose. And you'll notice in verse 8, a very interesting verse. The battle spread over the face of all the country, and the forest devoured more people that day than the sword. More than them killing each other with javelin and sword and spear, it's the topography of this weird forest. People falling in crevices and into holes and pits, and they die. 
more people died because of the wilderness than because of the weaponry. It's an interesting thing, but that's how David learned to fight. And his men, though, even if they were outnumbered, numbers don't help you much in the cover of forest. And they go to battle there. David's men, guerrilla warfare experts, show their expertise. Absalom is vastly defeated. His men, he lost many more than David did. And Absalom himself, in his arrogance, in his long hair, he's riding, he's riding a mule. I find this weird. Y'all know what a mule is? You think you know, but this is an interesting thing. A couple weeks ago, I was visiting one of our members who has a mule in his backyard. Now, this is weird. Can you all guess one of our members who has a mule in his backyard? Anybody guess? Anybody want to try to guess? He has a mule, he has donkey, he has weird chickens that don't do anything but just stand there and look at you. They don't lay eggs, they aren't useful for anything. They're ugly little things with little afros on them. Not afros, what do you call those? Mohawks, thank you. It's a mohawk, uh, and, and they're beautiful to look at, but they're tiny like this. And you can't eat them, they don't make eggs. Why are they here? I don't know. Why are they in his yard? I don't know. He just likes them. He has a mule back there. Do you know how to make a mule? Anybody know how to make a mule? This is a great lesson here tonight. This is no extra cost. A horse and a donkey make a mule, but a mule cannot reproduce. You cannot make a mule. I mean, uh, you can make a mule, but a mule can't make a mule. Two mules can't make a mule. Isn't that sad? That's tragic. That's one of the tragic truths of this sermon. Anyway, it has nothing to do with this, but there's, there's Absalom on a mule, and he goes under an oak tree, and there's a, the branches where they meet. That it forms a V, and somehow or another, if you were watching this on a video, you would see Absalom and mule go in, and only mule come out. It would be like riderless mule come out, and you're like, okay, what happened here? And his head got stuck in the fork of the tree. I don't know whether it's the long hair that helped it or just the fact that this was like, you know, he's not used to being in the woods like this. He's a, he's a city boy who doesn't know about trees, and he gets caught up there. Well, this one guy sees him, but he doesn't touch him. He comes to his general, Joab, and he says, I saw the son of the king hanging around in a tree, literally hanging in a tree. And Joab says, why didn't you kill him? And he says, are you crazy? And Joab says, I'll give you, and he gives him this special reward, his motivation to go kill him. And he says, if you give me, if you give me a million bucks, I'm not touching the king's son. I heard what he said. And if I did that, the king would be mad at me and you wouldn't defend me. It's a great conversation in the middle of war. Joab takes three javelins and plunges them into the body of Absalom. Doesn't kill him, but then ten other Troops of his gather around and they just beat him to a pulp and he dies. They bury him there. They just kind of throw him on the ground and, in a little crevice and cover him with rocks and that's it. And Absalom's gone. The threat is over. And you'd say the battle is over because Joab takes the trumpet. He blows the trumpet because he says there's no reason for us to continue fighting. There's no reason for any more loss of life. He blows the trumpet and everybody quits and goes home. He's left with one great challenge. How do you tell the king that his son's dead? There's this one um, messenger who's just 
chomping at the bit to run that long distance. He wants to tell the story. And Joab says, do you not realize this is not good news? Yes, yes, we won. But David will be more upset over the loss of Absalom than rejoicing over the fact that we won. This is not good news. You do not want to carry this. And so he sends a foreigner instead. But this servant, this runner, wants to run so bad that he finally bugs Joab enough to let him run back. He started last, but he gets there first because he's fast. He doesn't go over the hills. He goes, But he is able to get to David first, and he lets David know, the victory, you won. Then comes the foreigner. And that's where the text that we read had read a moment ago so beautifully happens i'll read this again but i want you to get this what david is saying here i want you to hear what he says the cushite came the cushite said good news for my lord the king the lord has delivered you this day from the hand of all who rose up against you and the king said to the cushite is it well with the young man absalom and the cushite answered and he did this well he doesn't say the name and he doesn't use the word dead or killed. May the enemies of my Lord the King and all who rise up against you for evil be like that young man. David got the message without the harsh words. How you say things matters. The king was deeply moved. He went up to the chamber over the gate where he was alone and he wept and the cry is horrendous. Oh, my son Absalom, my son, my son Absalom, would I had died instead of you, oh, Absalom, my son, my son. I would give my life for the roles to be changed. Maybe if God would have taken my life, you wouldn't be so bitter and angry and you'd be alive now. I'd give my life for you. You ever feel that way? Anyone who's lost a child must know the intensity of this grief right here, explained and described right here. All those truths we talked about at the beginning are true. They are part of life. But there's interesting glimpses in this story of the gospel that we rehearse every Sunday. In our story, God's king was rejected by his people. And he had to face death at the hands of those very people. But that death that our king suffered from our hands was necessary to save the very people who killed him. It's an amazing story. And just as much as in this story there's betrayal and there's suicide and there's disloyalty and there's pride and there's blind ambition, unwillingness to submit to, uh, to, to God in that story too. But in the end, the results are the same. God's king does rule and those who are truly God's people do serve him. But I have to wonder in the story of the gospel about the tragedy God who creates all people and loves all people, he knows full well that a majority of them are not going to choose him. And I wonder about the cry of God on that day. When God chooses, these people go into eternal life with him, and these people have chosen not to. What will the cry of God be like? 
What would it be like for God who created all those people to see them? They are his sons and daughters too. The gospel is good news, but it has tragedy in it too, doesn't it? And we know that when we preach it, we've got a small group here on a Sunday night of people who have been saved by that gospel story and we're rejoicing. But there are many, many people who aren't here. And that same story becomes a tragedy, doesn't it? I think you have to feel that. I think you have to feel that deeply to be very good at rejoicing over what you have and over being compelled to reach out to those people who right now are part of the tragedy. May we be a people who really understand what God has done for us, that we rejoice in the gospel like we talked about this morning. We're proud of it and we're grateful for it. But may we always know of the tragedy too that the gospel implies. Many are away from God. Many are estranged. And many have a fate much like Absalom's that awaits them unless, unless someone reaches them with this gospel story that we know. Tragic truths and a story of Scripture. And tonight we do celebrate the fact that it's also comedy in the sense of a good ending. A good, good, victorious ending for us. We rejoice over that but never lose sight of the tragedy it also is. It motivates us to be the kind of people that we need to be and reach out to those who need it. If you need to respond this evening spiritually, if you have a need that needs to be known and we can, meet, we can help you with, please make it known. Be comfortable, be, be, be willing to come and share it with us as we stand and as we sing to encourage you.